everyone to another RCP Medicine podcast. My name is Laura and I'm an education fellow working at the college. We are dedicating this podcast to Clean Air Day, which is being marked on the 16th of June this year. And I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Ian Sinner to speak more about this important subject. Ian is a consultant respiratory paediatrician with a particular interest in childhood asthma and neonatal lung disease and very involved in the campaign against air pollution. Welcome, Ian. Oh, thank you very much. Um, do you want to start off by telling us a bit about where your interest in this, this area started and how you became involved in this subject? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, as you say, I'm a respiratory paediatrician, indoor and outdoor air quality are things that directly impact on uh, on, the, on the children that I see um, in a place like uh, Liverpool and across Merseyside where there's high levels of deprivation and, and, and large areas of deprivation. Uh, it's certainly a problem that that impacts on, on my patients and, and their families. I guess going back even further, I mean, back in the 1980s, we were learning about uh, about air pollution in primary school and in high school. And uh, we were kind of seeing then you know the the foundations really for what we're seeing now in terms of uh, our, our understanding of of air pollution. Uh, so I think I've been interested in it since I was a child, really. But my professional interest is is very relevant, as I say, because of the of the patient set that I see. Yes, I think it's a really um, evolving subject that we're all getting our heads around and seeing the consequences more and more um, as the year goes as the years go on to kind of help everyone to understand the the basics. Could you give us an overview of in your understanding and, and expertise of what air pollution is and, and where it comes from? Yes, so w- when we think about air, in, in essence, air pollution describes things that are w- within the air that, uh, that, that people breathe uh, that, uh, that, that shouldn't be there. Um, and in terms of air pollution itself, I mean, you know, obviously air has got things in it, but I think really when I think about air pollution, what I'm talking about is chemicals or particles which are in the air to a degree that they might cause uh, either a health issue or an environmental issue uh, of, of, of note. Um, in terms of where it comes from and, and what it is, the, the, there's two types of pollutants really that we see. One is um, gaseous pollutants like nitrogen oxide, sulfur dioxide, hydrogen sulfide, and one is particulate matter or dust. And both of these can come from a variety of sources, but generally speaking, you can get them from personal production of of air pollution. So uh, driving uh, a car, for example, will, will lead to air pollution. Uh, but but also uh, an important thing to factor in is um, industrial air pollution. Uh, and both of these have different patterns. Both of these cause different problems. And both of these need to be tackled in different ways. A lot of these things are a little bit uh, variable. So if we think about particulate matter, in essence, that's a bit of an umbrella term that encompasses lots of different types of dust. So if you live near the sea, particulate matter that you breathe might be sand. If you live near a busy dual carriageway, then you might be breathing uh, particles from uh, diesel uh, lorries that are driving past. So so air pollution and air pollutants do vary depending on, on, on where you are and what the sources are. But I think these are the two big things for outdoor air pollution is, is gaseous pollutants and dust pollutants. 
And when we think about indoor air pollution, uh, which is again very important for health, uh, we can think about other things that affect air quality. So we think about humidity, we think about uh, again dust, we think about indoor allergens uh, related to things like cockroaches and, and, and rodents, and of course uh, cigarette smoking and the secondhand uh, cigarette smoke uh, within the house. So these are the two big groups, indoor and outdoor air pollution, and I think those are probably the key things that we think about in practice. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, th I think we often neglect particularly indoor air pollution. Lots of us are aware of the outdoor air pollution and from cars, etc. But it's it's helpful to be reminded of the importance of, of the indoor pollutants as well. Sometimes on my phone, I get alerts that say today is a particularly high air pollution day. Could you shed some light on, on how meaningful that is or, or what I should do or what I should tell my patients that they should do um, when I get those alerts? Yeah, both of those things are a little bit difficult at the moment in terms of our understanding. So I, 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 there are various definitions of what constitutes a high air pollution day. Uh, some of it depends on what the pollutant is, some of it depends on how high it is, and some of it depends on what it is that we're talking about. So when we think about air pollution, we quite often think about spikes of air pollution, and that's important. Because if air pollution levels go up very high, there's, there's good evidence for various health conditions that that can lead to problems. Uh, but alongside this, there's also a chronic low-level background exposure, which in itself can also be very dangerous. So that might not necessarily flag up on your phone as being a high air pollution day. But if it's causing a problem over the course of say 365 days at a much lower level that's equally dangerous to, to to people because that can can also cause cumulative problems so i really struggle with the concept of what a high pollution day is from from, from that perspective but i also struggle with what should we tell people to do there, there is uh, national recommendations that if you have asthma for example and the air pollution is high you should try not to go outside and I obviously understand the rationale for that because you're trying to protect people from aero irritants or things that can cause them to have an asthma attack but the flip side of that is that the very people who are, are exposed to these problems are the people that we do want to go outside to you, you know to go and utilize green space where they can to run around and be healthy and fit and, and certainly for children it becomes very difficult to su suggest to people to stay indoors and we've seen during the pandemic the difficulties that people have from being trapped inside and, and we have people who always have a high air pollution day so what are they supposed to do? I think some of the practical advice that we give families and, and that people can give is to avoid main roads if you do have to go outside um, and that largely involves trying to take back streets and back routes but again there are problems with that you know there are safety issues for example about uh, about, about anyone but certainly women or, or young people walking down back streets by themselves there are issues about time and we know that people often don't have time to make those choices so th these things are, are are sensible things to say but they're not always implementable in in people's day-to-day -day lives and we, and we need to be 
sensitive uh, to that. I, I've started saying to uh, children, and this is not evidence-based, but anecdotal-based, that uh, wearing like a snood or a mask or something that can cover your face might help. And you can argue against the, um, you know, for and against the scientific rationale for that particulate matter that's very tiny and gases can still pass through that. But again, it probably has no more or less evidence than the idea of taking a different route to school at the moment. So I, I tell people to do that. And certainly when we tell people to do that in clinic, they've come back and said that it seems to have had some effect on, on how they are. Um, but I think the key thing is to try and avoid main roads where one can uh, and try and be alert to things like plumes of smoke coming off from something or, or standing back a little bit away from the road uh, if you can. But the air pollution finds a way of, uh, of spreading through the air. So it, it, it does become difficult. Thank you, Ian. I think it's, as you say, a really, it's a thorny issue and you have to have a very nuanced approach um, when interpreting that. So that's, that's a really helpful explanation. I think it would be helpful at this point to, to talk about what the, the health impact of the rising levels of air pollution um, in in particularly in the UK, if we focus it on there for the moment, um, and what you've seen perhaps over your clinical practice um, and the areas that we should be concerned about. Absolutely. And again, I'd probably break that down into indoor and outdoor air pollution and chronic and acute exposure to air pollution. So in terms of uh, what the health impacts of poor quality air are, there's uh, probably a few domains really that we that we can consider this in. We know that the airways suffer when they are exposed to uh, to, to air pollutants, uh, and that makes sense to people. You, you know, the, the 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 epithelia or the lining of the airways are very much the interface between the respiratory system and the outside world. It's one of the few uh, body organs that does have a direct uh, contact with with the outside world so it makes sense to people and when we look at what happens uh, pathophysiologically uh, in response to air pollution it's an air, this is an area of, of research that, that that is expanding but what we can say with some degree of certainty is that high levels of air pollution can damage the lining of the airways and can cause a direct impact on cell death and cell survival in the airways. It leads to inflammation. In other words, the immune system acting in such a way as to cause uh, problems in the airways. It can lead to uh, free radical formation and other chemical changes that can be directly irritant to the airway. Uh, it can have direct effects on the immune system. So the immune system of people exposed to air pollution is is impaired and they're therefore more more at risk of, of of infections in the respiratory tract uh, and very worryingly we're starting to see effects that air pollution might have on people's dna uh, epigenetically so what we know by uh, what we've learned over time is that your dna is um, or the way that your dna works is altered by these epigenetic factors in other words the interaction between your genes and your environment can be very important. And the impact of this can be very large. So if you look, for example, at deprivation, up to 10% of your DNA 
is uh, is, is is altered by by the situations in which you are uh, born and brought up as a as a young child, and air pollution is showing some of these epigenetic, uh, or has been associated with some of these epigenetic changes. So that seems to be what happens in the in the airways themselves. Alongside this, uh, you know, as someone who's very interested in asthma, I'm quite taken by um, some recent research showing that air pollution itself can drive the particular type of inflammation that we tend to associate with allergy. It can drive a particular type of, of, of inflammation that can in fact lead to asthma. And when we think about indoor air pollution, that's something that's very relevant because when we think about the air that people breathe and particularly that children breathe, if it's got things like house dust mite or cockroach uh, allergen in the air, this can trigger your body and the immune system to to become sensitized to those allergens. In other words, that's the start of the process of, uh, of inflammation specifically that happens in people with asthma, eczema, fever. So from a health perspective, I think it's conceptually quite easy to think about respiratory illness. But alongside that, we, and I think this is where something has flipped in the last maybe five to 10 years, we're seeing other illnesses that might not be so intuitively linked with air pollution. We're seeing papers showing clear links between air pollution and other diseases. So the thing that is very worrying, I, I think it's cardiovascular disease and stroke. Uh, and alongside that, what we uh, see is higher rates of type 2 diabetes in some studies. And we see problems with mental health. We see problems with um, reproductive health. And when we trace back the pathophysiological mechanisms of that and those types of problems, it seems that air pollution can have a direct impact on other parts of the body because it is absorbed and can systemically enter the, the blood vessels and, and the circulatory system. And when it does, again, it leads to similar problems that it does in the airways. It leads to free radicals, it leads to uh, problems with inflammation, but it also leads to increased plaque formation in blood vessels. So when we see papers discussing, for example, the risks of early onset dementia and schizophrenia, this may well be because of direct damage to blood vessels feeding organs around the body. Uh, so those are the health effects that, that we understand now. And moving forward, one of the really interesting things and very worrying things that we need to get our head around is particularly the impact of air pollution on pregnant women because we know that air pollution or air pollutants can cross the placenta we know that they can affect the the, the unborn fetus and the long-term consequences of this are obviously stark Gosh, that's really fascinating and I, I guess a lot of our audience will be familiar like you say with the respiratory impacts but it sounds like we'll be finding more and more out about the wider impacts on health um, as the research continues. I wondered if you know of any research or any data associating air pollution with mortality rates? Yeah, so this is often a little bit difficult to tease out. Um, there are data, and off the top of my head, I can't remember the exact figure, but it's in the hundreds of millions of people globally whose deaths over the last five to 10 years can be uh, attributed in some part to air pollution. It's, it, it is difficult because there's also an inequality about 
about exposure to air pollution and, and the very factors that make someone more at risk of exposure to air pollution are the same factors that make them at risk of other illnesses as well. So it is difficult to tease out. But in essence, a proportion of, of people who die globally, uh, and like I say, that is in the region of, of hundreds of millions of people, uh, you can attribute some of their death to to this. I mean, to put it, you know, to put that in context, thinking about mortality becomes a little bit tricky because of these confounding factors that I've said. But if we were to think about stroke, there's now pretty good evidence that up to around 12 to 15 percent of, of strokes have been contributed to by exposure to air pollution. Um, so you can start to see that this is not going to be a small number of people who've been uh, you know, whose mortality is, is is premature because of this. And again, the global impact of this is is staggering. So if we think through, for example, in India, where air pollution is, is, is very high in urban settings like Delhi, the kinds of people that are particularly at risk are the rickshaw drivers who, you know, literally spend their life sitting behind really dirty diesel fumes and, and breathing in that air. And I've seen analyses which suggest that it takes 25, 30 years off their life. Again, for observational data like this, it's, it's difficult to be too clear about what the actual impact is. But in terms of order of magnitude, we're talking about, I think, 10 to 15 percent of, of, of people may have some kind of premature mortality because of because of exposure to, to, to air pollution. I guess the other thing that makes it difficult to tease out is that, in my opinion, in the, in the opinion of many people, our current levels for what is, inverted commas, acceptable for air pollution levels are way too high. So if we were to try and tease out to what degree does excess air pollution cause death? I think we're massively underestimating that at the moment because the levels should be much lower than they are. There's now consistent evidence across different disease areas that low at exposure to much lower levels than the WHO, for example, are currently recommending. We see changes in health and changes in, in children's health. And so the levels should be much lower than they are. And if people were to redo those analyses based on much lower levels, I think the impact of air pollution will be absolutely staggering compared to what we think it is now. I think it's, it's a scary concept. Thank you for summarising that, Ian. I, we appreciate that the data must be very quite varied and also emerging. So um, that's helpful to know that what we do know is that the impact is is definitely significant. And I think that leads quite nicely on to talking about what inequalities that we know of. You, you've touched on um, some of them throughout our conversation so far. Which inequalities do you think uh, are most understood at the moment? In terms of air pollution, I think I see inequality in, in, in three ways. So firstly, uh, the, in, in terms of the exposure to air pollution, I think there are certain groups that are clearly more exposed to air pollution than, than, than other groups. I think the second inequality lies in the fact that there are certain groups who are more susceptible to the problems of air pollution uh, in terms of the health effects that it might have. And the third inequality we see is in people's ability to do something about it. So if we take the first of those, there is clear evidence from the UK, the Netherlands and other places uh, that 
the poorest communities are exposed to the highest levels of air pollution uh, and areas with uh, high levels of non-white communities, so high levels of, of, of particularly black people, are exposed to higher levels of, of air pollution. So that's the first inequality. Uh, it's very much something that both traffic and industrial air pollution will do. They will gravitate towards uh, the, the, the less affluent uh, areas. Um, the second inequality that we mentioned was that particular groups are more susceptible. So children are more susceptible to the effects of air pollution, certainly from a respiratory perspective. And to be honest, and I appreciate this is the RCP podcast, my college as a paediatrician that, that I'm a member of is the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health. Um, but if we think about what adult medicine really is for many of the patients that come through to our wonderful colleagues who, who look after adults, actually for a lot of patients what we're seeing is just the manifestations of what went wrong when they were children or before they were even born and before they were even conceived and I think air pollution is a great example for this that the impact of air pollution on children is higher than it is on on other groups um, and also if we were to think back to those mechanistic factors you know we talked about free radicals and free radical formations and the, you know the types of chemical reactions that that causes. We know that the answer to free radicals, well obviously the, the key answer is to avoid them being there in the first place, but you can offset some of the impact of free radicals by eating fresh fruit and vegetables. But as we see in the UK and around the world, fresh fruit and vegetables are not cheap. And with the current cost of living uh, uh, problems and the cost of living crisis that we're going through, the very children that would benefit the most from that protection are the very children who are least likely to be able to access it. And when we think about the other mechanisms like the cardiovascular impacts of, of plaque formation, again, the poorest communities are the communities in which you're more likely to find people with early atherosclerosis being slightly overweight, you know, and the, these are the problems that uh, that, that, that compound each other and I think they have a synergistic effect, you know, a disproportionately high effect on each other and there is some evidence about that. And then the third thing that we said was that there's an inequality about what people can do about it and for me this is the absolute crux of inequality in general and this is what we see throughout human history. It, you know, Titanic hit one iceberg in the middle of the sea and yet the people in the poorest parts of the ship were three times as likely to drown. You know, the Hurricane Katrina uh, hit New Orleans and we found that the poorest communities, largely the black uh, communities, were least able to leave and flee. When you go back even to the medieval plague, we see that the public health advice was get out, go to your country residences and live there. But obviously, you know, who's got a country residence? The richest people, so the poor stay behind and suffer and die disproportionately. And that's exactly, I think, what we see with air pollution, that we hit the uh, the poorest group the most, despite the fact that the, 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 the least affluent communities actually generate the least air pollution, they are exposed to the most air pollution. That's a whole new level of injustice around that. Um, but the, 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 the least affluent communities are hit the hardest. The people living there are already the people that are going to suffer the most 
in terms of the consequences of air pollution and they are least able to do something about it. For me, that's the model of inequality with air pollution. It runs deep. The wound runs very, very deep and it's going to need a lot of sorting out. Really. And the case that springs to mind um, of the back of what you're saying there is is that of the tragic case of Ella Kissadebri, um, who, who very sadly died after multiple admissions to hospital with um, severe asthma in South London. And, and I understand that she's the first person to ever have um, air pollution listed on, on her death certificate as a cause of death. Are, are you able to comment on that case and what you think that means going forwards? Uh, yes, I can. Um... So I, I know the case uh, well. So, so for those who, who don't know, uh, Ella Kissy Deborah was a absolutely beautiful little girl who died from an asthma attack uh, over ten years ago. Uh, she had been struggling with her, uh, her her asthma attacks for a little while, and then had a fatal one. Um, and her mum, Rosamond, who is one of the most uh, vocal and eloquent and passionate advocates for clean air for children and for everybody um, had to go through a really difficult process of trying to get the UK to acknowledge the impact that air pollution had had on her daughter. It was a well publicised case and a shocking case for many people and I think really brought to light when we talk about mortality and this is you know I mean you asked before about the numbers of people in some ways that we get lost in the numbers and we get lost in academic arguments about you know the epidemiological basis for this that and the other actually air pollution has direct impacts on people's lives and 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 can uh, can lead to fatal problems and that's what we saw with Ella and the reason I know the case well is that after years of pushing and campaigning and advocating by Ella's mum there was a review by a coroner who went back through the case and deemed that air pollution was a contributory cause of her of her death and as you say I think she's the first person in the world I guess who's got air pollution listed as a cause of death. It was a landmark case for many reasons a watershed case but those of us who do you know some 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 work in this field often refer to that tragic case because it's you know i mean she was the first person to have it written on her death certificate and unless we're very quick about it she isn't going to be the last you know we really have to act on this we owe it to her as a country to learn from the mistakes of, of the past and move forward and the reason i know her case well is because i was asked to write a report uh, for the coroner um and within that report I was quite quite clear in my mind that air pollution was a significant contributor to to her death, and I, and I think it, that was for two reasons. I, I I think it was clear in my mind that air pollution contributed to her developing asthma in the first place, but I also think that high levels of air pollution contributed to the severe and indeed and sadly fatal asthma attack that she she had it's 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 sad for for you know for millions of reasons um but it'll be even sadder if we don't learn from this and and use her memory as a way of, of driving forward change um and many of us are completely in awe of of her mum rosamund who's uh, an amazing woman you know, I've, had, I've had the 
privilege of, of, of meeting with her and, and I think everybody should really get behind uh, campaigns that, that, that she's involved with. Yes, she's a really fantastic spokesperson. I've I've read some of her work and I'd really encourage listeners to um, have a look into that case. As you say, I think to bring to life what these numbers and what the this, the science and the cases, they, they're, they're meaningless without um, real stories behind it. And I think, again, these cases really highlight how air pollution and the inequalities within it or having good a good air quality in in the local area where you live and and work is is as much a human right human rights issue as as many other issues. Is that something that you you are trying to push forward as well? Absolutely. I mean, the human rights of of, of children and the human rights of, of women are uh, you know, and I've been very vocal about this in the past are, are under threat. When we compare, I know this is a UK based podcast that may be listened to in other countries. If we focus on the UK itself, the if you, if you compare the Human Rights Index and the Children's Rights Index and the Women's uh, Wellbeing Index indices and, and other sort of markers of, of how human rights are, we, we do badly in the UK. When we compare our health outcomes to other countries, we also do badly, and and their approach is is often very different to ours. So if we compare the UK with Scandinavia, and I'm not just talking air pollution here, because Scandinavia obviously has got you know wonderful air, but if we compare our approach to women and children in terms of just infrastructure and funding and all this kind of stuff, we see a difference between the two, and I think we see a similar thing when it comes to air pollution. So in this country, thinking about what we mean by human rights, we mean basically the fundamental basics that you need in terms of children that you need in order to be safe and in order to fulfil your potential. And the UK has, uh, has signed up to the UN Convention of the Rights of the Child. Every country in the world except the US, as far as I'm aware, has signed up to ratify the UN Convention of the Rights of the Child. And in doing that, we've signed up to the idea that we should be doing everything within our power, individually and systemically and at local and national government level to enable children to achieve their full potential. And as we've said before, the lifelong impacts of, of, of air pollution are, are causing a problem and a barrier for people to, to optimise their chances of living their best life. An example of this, I think, that's in the news at the moment is, um, is around landfill sites. So I've been involved with a case in a landfill site in um, in Newcastle under Lyme uh, in the North Midlands. And, you know, this is a huge landfill that is right next to where people live. And, you know, children are suffering the health effects because of this. And they're going to continue to be exposed to the health effects because of this. And yet when we think about the impact on, on rights. We're not doing anything about it. We've seen, we hear that children in that area are suffering with chest problems. They suffer from nosebleeds. I mean, the you know, the dinner lady has to kind of sniff the air to see if it's safe sometimes for the children to go outside and play. You know, the, most of the parents I've spoken to in the area will say that their children will have several nosebleeds a day sometimes. You know, you can smell this awful gassy smell and 
it impacts on children's ability to go to school as well. So in this community where they want their kids to, to, to do really well, they're already hampered by the fact that, you know, as we were discussing before, the idea that when air pollutants are high, people are told to stay at home. These guys are told to stay in their house, close their windows, don't go anywhere. You know, how on earth do we expect children to flourish in a situation like that? So I think industrial pollution like that is, is, is a real issue and I've been involved, have had the privilege of meeting families there, but also in Southall in um, southwest London, where again, you know, parents are telling us that their children sometimes are playing football in, you know, plumes of smoke coming from incinerators that burn plastic and you know they've got a tarmac factory on one side of their house building uh making tarmac to build extra runways at heathrow airport they've got gas works on the other side of their house they're building large you know blocks of flats which are supposed to be affordable housing but i'm not quite sure how affordable it will be there's main roads and busy roads running in front and these are again you know areas where there are high levels of, of, of black people and deprivation and these are the very communities that suffer the most from these problems so if that's not a systemic affront on the human rights of the children who live in you know in newcastle under lyme and and in southall then i don't know what is and when we think about rights, the difficulty that we have in the UK is that these rights aren't written into the law. So we can talk about human rights as much as we want, but it doesn't mean anything unless there's some accountability. And that's why I think it's really important that we advocate and push for human rights for, for example, clean air and food and good housing to be written into the UK law, because with rights, come responsibilities with responsibility comes accountability and with accountability comes the possibility of real change that that can be meaningful for the people that need it the most yes those um those examples really bring to life the importance of having it written into the law as you say and the challenges of so many people living um in less privileged positions who who are then suffering as, as a result of this and I think a lot of us in our clinical and professional practice will be able to reflect on patients that we've seen who come from more deprived areas and we, we do see higher levels of of these chronic diseases that are linked in the way that you describe. We've talked a lot about the situation as it is and and what the what the risks and the concerns are. Can you comment on what we can expect from the future or is there any research around that to help us understand if the situation continues as it is what what we might expect particularly as a physician workforce yeah great question there's uh, it's a really exciting field there's been a lot of interest and investment in some uh, in some research groups uh, around the country and i think the first thing that needs to happen is that we all need to link a bit better with each other so we can avoid duplication and so we've been linking with, with, with different groups and are looking forward to taking forward those collaborations in in a meaningful way i think there's really key stuff happening at uh, Imperial College in London. So their group, their environmental research group, I think it's called, has, has recently, I, I say recently, it may have been around for a while, you know, they did this hit the UK news that um, something like 75% of the population is regularly exposed to higher levels of air pollution. And that came from some amazing epidemiological modelling work that their group has been doing for some time. Uh, and I think that's about tying together various things that might impact on air pollution levels and and modeling the, the levels at, at very 
um, you know, I think certainly to, you know, more specific and minute level than we've than we've been able to do before. And some work that we're planning on starting in, in Liverpool is how to tie in satellite projections of what's happening with air pollution into that. So that's one level of work is big data across the country, what's happening. And I think that's a really exciting piece of work at a smaller sorry not a smaller level but you know at a, a similar area of, of huge interest at the moment is how do you actually measure air pollution what are the sensors that can be used so that becomes really important when we try and hold people to account for air pollution we, you know we need good data to show that there is a problem we need those data to be able to link together so there's a lot of research going on about sensors both indoor and outdoor air quality sensors and i'm I'd like to give a nod here to to my uh, colleague uh, Johnny Hyam at the University of Liverpool, who's a academic. He's in the Department of Geography, and we're doing some work around modelling traffic flow through the city. And other people are doing similar pieces of work around the country using more uh, affordable sensors. Uh, I think there's some pieces of work that need to be done about community engagement. So alongside the epidemiological research and the measuring of air pollution, I think we really need to be empowering citizen science and air pollution is a great example and a great uh, way to bring communities together around air pollution, but we don't yet know how to do that well. So I think the social sciences have a really important role to play here. Um, and obviously as clinicians, what we see is the, the health impacts of this. And I think, um, uh, you know, continued ongoing work in this field is important so that we understand both the mechanistic problems of, of air pollution, but also the impacts that this has. I think alongside the research, what we need to be careful of, uh, and this is, I guess, just a, you know, slightly vague note of caution, is that all of this ultimately needs to lead to change. We can't just keep publishing papers about air pollution and saying this is bad. That's really important. We have to publish those papers so that we've got a strong body of work saying this is bad. But we can't just get stuck within that. We also need to use that to drive change. And that's where I think we uh, need to be uh, infusing the younger generation, so the kids who are at school now, the young people going to university now, the young people doing degrees or the students doing degrees or postgrads or masters or PhDs. We need to be building up a strong community of up and coming people to try and drive that, uh, that change. And within that, we certainly, and I'll, I'll explain why I'm saying this, we certainly need groups from uh, us, people from underrepresented groups ethnically and we need people from from different parts of the country and, and of the world but we also need women to be doing that and the reason I say those three things is quite specific and that's that if you look at urban and rural development in the UK and in other rich countries it's very much designed the world is designed by men you know quite specifically in many places white men um, and so the impact of interventions that we see at systemic level are not necessarily the kinds of impacts that, that would benefit people. If we look at women, for example, women are more likely to be the people pushing a pushchair down a busy road at 8.40 in the morning as they drop their other kids off at school. And yet when we think about the proportion of women in things like 
you know, high levels of, of leadership in terms of urban town planning, in terms of data science, that there are gaps and we really need to plug those gaps. And, and similarly, when we think about underrepresented groups, you, you know, children from poorer communities, black children, for example, from poorer communities are underrepresented in data science. And yet if we bring people with the lived experience uh, into this, we'll start to see a change in, in how we approach the science and also how we approach the results of that science. So I think it's a, it's encouraging to me when I see um, advertisements and, and campaigns to try and get women and underrepresented groups into data science. I think this is something that we very much need to get behind as well. Yes, and I think a, a joined up approach from all the different interested members, in, including healthcare professionals like ourselves, um, is absolutely crucial, isn't it, for driving particularly change at a political level. Um, and I guess that's a lot of the ethos of the Clean Air Day, which is is coming up in, in a couple of weeks time. Clean Air Day is a, a day that marks the importance of this particular subject, and we've heard extensively about that in this podcast today. Are there any things specifically that we can be doing, Ian, to to help with this cause and to both campaign, but also make changes in our own lives that might improve the air quality that we we have at the moment? Yeah, great question. So Clean Air Day is um, it's a great opportunity to to, to open and have conversations, and it, it brings to the front, you know to the forefront things that are important. If we think about Clean Air Day. And what it means to people over the years it's it's you know we've seen a couple of consistent threads so it is a great opportunity to educate um we when we say the word educate we immediately think of of younger people but actually we need to educate ourselves you know we all need to be better educated about about various things in in, in the world and in life and air pollution is definitely one of them so uh things that we can do to educate or talk together for example you know, in workplaces, if people can talk together about things that they could do as a team to reduce their travel to work by car or whatever it might be, that that can be important. I think it's a nice opportunity for people to try something new. So in our department in Alderhey Children's Hospital, my uh, colleague, uh, Dr. Sarah Mayle, has been a really strong advocate for for a lot of the things that I was that, that I've been talking about on this podcast, and in many ways is both um, a bit of a sounding board for me, but it's also been a bit of a mentor for me as I've been, you know, kind of getting my head around a lot of this. And she's really pushing across the hospital that we cycle or walk to work on that day, uh, and also has highlighted other things that happen within the hospital that we should be doing better. And a clean air day, I think it's a great opportunity to try and cement that and, and get those things in the forefront of people's minds. I think the thing that I really love seeing on clean air day is when people do things with groups of school children where they, you know, they do citizen science type projects. And I think that would be a really lovely thing to try and engage ourselves with. If we can use clean air day as a way of bringing us in healthcare closer with the communities that we that we have the privilege of serving, I think that would be a really good use of the day. And of, of, of all the things, you know, I mean, going back to the cycling to work, uh, it's, it's a little bit like World Book Day. You know, a child reading a book on World Book Day doesn't make them 
literate, but it's about trying to identify, you, you know, to enthuse children and trying to identify things that they might be interested in. And, you know, people might find that cycling to work is actually fun and healthy and good for them. They might find that it isn't, and, that, and that's fine. And we need to make sure that we aren't stigmatizing people who aren't able to make the changes that we, for example, try for a day on Clean Air Day. But it's very much about finding longer term solutions because that's the key. And, and of all the things that I said, the longest term solution with the biggest bang for your buck, I think, my, I, I would be putting my money on linking with communities, doing something between health and the local communities that we that we serve. Yes, it's a great opportunity um, for health and healthcare and local communities to really connect over a really a really common issue. We all we all breathe, we all are affected mm. by the air quality around us. So you're right, it's it, it is about not not working within our own silos, but interacting with with those around us as well. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much, Ian. That was a really fascinating conversation. And you've you've shared so much with us and we at the RCP are absolutely delighted to have our paediatrician colleagues, as you say, that your patients are our patients in the future. So um, it's been brilliant to, to have you along. I would really encourage listeners to look up more about Clean Air Day, which is on the 16th of June. Um, we'll put a link uh, to the website on the podcast notes, and that will show some ideas about how you can get involved, how you can maybe put some promotion on social media and, and have opportunities to talk with your colleagues or, or with local schools or with other connections that you have in your community about how you can raise the profile of, of this issue. I'll also mention that if you are interested in this subject, we do have another podcast that was released in November last year uh, with Professor Sir Stephen Holgate, who goes into um, similar detail, but on a on, on different subjects of, of air quality and, and air pollution. So do have a listen back to that as well. I'll close off now and say thank you so much for listening. And we really hope that you can join us again for future episodes. And thank you again, Ian. Thank you.